0: our text is here in uh, Matthew chapter 21 this morning. And I, I tell you, that is a tremendous song. L- let, let me just say this. Uh, we, we don't have what we, they, they like to call a song leader worship leader. Uh, now the Holy Spirit is the worship leader by the way. Okay, so let's not try to take His position from Him. But every song that we have here in our hymn book, they are Songs that we have and that we sing that are doctrinally right, so it's good to pay attention to those words and when soloists get up here and sing a song like that uh, It's really a sermon in words and so I, I encourage you to always listen to the words of a song and uh, It will stick with you as you hear that tune and, and That tune sticks in your heart and those words come back to your mind It means so much and so I would encourage you to do that our text is in Matthew chapter 21 today Beginning with verse 1. Now, I'm not going to start reading that to begin with, but uh, that is the main part of our text, and that's where you need to be. Today, they call it Palm Sunday. I've titled the sermon, Making a Grand Entrance, because that's talking about the day that Christ entered to Jerusalem for the Passion Week, as man also likes to call it, the Passion Week. And so it marks that day. And it's called the Palm Sunday because of the palms that were in that. And that wasn't even the major part of it. But uh, this morning what I want to do is just kind of show you all the things that are building up to that grand entry. then tonight we'll cover the grand entry as it uh, happened back in that day. And so I just wanted to make that clear to you. This story is uh, here in our text, but it's also found in Mark chapter 11, and beginning with verse 8 there, in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 29 there, and then it's also in John chapter 12, uh, beginning there with verse 13. So uh, we see it there in the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, which will probably not hit till tonight, but it's also in Psalms chapter 18, verses 22 through 26. Although it may be a little bit harder to see it because it's not worded the same way, but it's the same idea, it's the same thing, uh, really. And what we see in those gospel accounts is really telling us about Psalms also. Uh, as a preface to the message today, I want to read Acts chapter 15 and verse 19. Acts chapter 15 and verse uh, uh, 19, uh, 18, excuse me. Acts 15, 18. And there it says this Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. I, I don't know who said it first. I've heard several preachers say it. But it hasn't ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God. You know, He's always known. He's all-knowing. That's what omniscient means. He's all-knowing. And he's always known. So, nothing has ever surprised him. Man, I wasn't expecting that. You'll never heard that from God because He knew all things. We know from Genesis chapter 3, God already had a plan for man to be saved. His hope was for all men to be saved as a matter of fact. Because when you read 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He says that He is the propitiation for our sins. But not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The entire payment for all sin, for all time. In First Timothy chapter two, verse four, he says of him who would have all men to be saved. See, the Lord doesn't want to shut anybody out. But they must come to him in repentance and faith if they're going to be saved. They must receive him. Jesus Christ, we'll find out him saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So salvation must always, always in any situation, it is his way. God gave man a free will. We were created in God's image. God is a spirit. His spirit has a free will. You have a free will to receive or reject the plan of salvation. God knew Satan. Satan fell. He caused many angels. He's very cunning. He caused many angels to fall with him. It is believed that Revelation 12 is showing that at least one-third fell with him. But nonetheless, regardless of the number of angels that fell with him, God knew there from the very beginning of his cunningness that he would tempt man. Not that God made him to tempt man. God did not make Satan to tempt man. God did not make Satan to even sin himself. Satan had a free will and he made that choice. It's like you and I have a free will. God didn't make a murderer to be a murderer. He didn't make a rapist to be a rapist. They were all created with the Spirit. And so you have a free will to make that choice, yes or no. And so God designed a plan from the beginning of the world. And and we see that in Genesis chapter 3 when He said, The seed of the woman. The seed is never of the woman, except as Luke chapter 1 and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Yes, the Virgin Mary. The Spirit of God coming upon her was not a sexual thing, but rather as the Spirit entered into her, and in her, her spirit, and then in her body began to form that seed that would be the Son of God, but would not therefore be inheriting a sin nature like you and I were born with. And so we find that He always knew the all-knowing God has always known. And so we need to understand that before we delve into the message today. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started in this message. Father, as we start in this text, Lord, I pray that you'll do what I cannot do, and that is make it clear. May thy Holy Spirit speak to each heart under the sound of my voice today. And Lord, I pray that this brings bring glory to your name. And we'd ask it in your name. Amen. In our text in Matthew chapter twenty one, beginning with verse one. And I want to say this Since God had a purpose for everything that you see in the Word of God, even from the beginning, it's wise to look in his word and say, well, what is God's purpose in this? And so as we look here at uh, verse one of Matthew chapter twenty one, we need to see, well, what is his purpose? And so he says in verse one, and when they had Uh, drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus two of his disciples. Now, they were walking up from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's where they were, and that's where they walked from. Uh, Anytime you're in Israel, If you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. From any point in Israel, you're going up when you go to Jerusalem. And so, that's why it says going up to Jerusalem. They they were going up to Jerusalem. But, unlike us, uh, riding buses and cars, they walked it all the way up to Jerusalem. Uh, The road from Jericho to Jerusalem passes through a mountainous region. And therefore, with mountains on either side, there is a dark valley that's in between those things. And that valley is referred to in writings of that day, in historical records of that day, it was referred to the valley of the shadow of death. Many times there were people that were killed in that valley. With the mountains there and the shading over, there could be bad men that would be waiting there to see it. And so uh, that was the mountain that they were going up to. Uh, They were walking through those mountains and that that valley as they headed up, and, and they would be on the backside of the mountain called the Mount of Olives when they arrived. At Bethphage. Now some of you have gone with me to Israel and when we're going from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea we can see off to the left Then usually the uh, guide will say off to the left you can see that city on way on over there that is Jericho. Well you know how low it goes going down well those that went with me Jesus and his disciples walked all the way back up on rough terrain, and I guess their sandals. I mean, they didn't have their sneakers back then. So, they walked that all the way back. And that's a good way. They didn't walk that in one day. Okay. They didn't walk that in one day. So, that, that took a couple of days. So, I'm sure they had to stop. They'd spend the night look for a safe place where they would spend the night each time out there where they could watch and be on guard while also taking their rest. And I, I can remember going by uh, Jericho. We'd look out there Time or two, I tried to sing Joshua the Battle of Jericho, Louis Armstrong style. I don't think that he'll ever forgive me, but it wasn't like Louis Armstrong, okay? But nonetheless, I, I, I enjoy going to Israel. Coming up there, you can see how rough it is and how hard it is. And, and so, when you think it's uphill all the way, it's a walk. I, I actually believe they had. Uh, maybe a donkey, maybe a mule of some kind that, that walked behind them because they had clothes they carried. Don't forget, Jesus had on that garment, was woven from top throughout that they parted, you know, when they were trying to decide, okay, let's cast lots for it and things like that. Well, uh, he carried, he, he had that, but he didn't wear it up there. That's what he was going to wear to the Passover feast that would be taking place in Jerusalem. And that's why they headed back to Jerusalem. They were headed back for the Passover feast. So walking a couple of days, sleeping there on the way in that desert type of a climate. And I believe that they probably woke up early enough. They walk far enough to just be a little way from Bethphage. Didn't quite make it, but a little way from it, so that the next day they could walk right in and go to work on what they were doing. And so they made that walk up, and they would make Bethphage, which was a small community, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And that's why you see the Mount of Olives mentioned there. Jesus even had a place there at the Mount of Olives that He would go and pray. So, Jesus, after they've arrived there in Bethpage, he looks to his disciples and he says, There in verses uh, 2 and 3, as he's talking to his disciples, he tells two of them, gives them instruction about what he wants them to do. So, in verse 2, he says, Saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. So they would go to that village, they would go into Bethphage, and there it would be right there. It would be tied up right there. And, and so that's what he's doing. But what I also want you to see in that, the Lord knew ahead of time that sure enough that ass would be told; it uh, would be tied there with its pole, its coat, with it, and so it would be right there. He knew it would be. He knew what was going to happen, and so he's able to tell them without even having walked in there yet to see it. He knows what's there. He gives them instruction, and I believe after a short break of getting there, he starts giving these instructions to them. The Passover is going to be the next day. They'll be having the Passover the, uh, supper that night, the next night. He'll be going to Calvary that we sung of this morning, the next day after that. So they walked all that way. And he said, if any man say unto you, ye shall say, the Lord hath need of him Of them. And straightway, he will send them. Now, I sometimes, you know, you read, you wonder, how does that how does that happen? I mean, I wonder if the man who did ask about it also had a vision the night before or a dream of some kind where God showed him that this was going to happen. I mean, usually you, you didn't just let your animals go with strangers. And so, they had that from the Lord. And so, He goes ahead and they says, we need them to go and prepare a place. And so, that's what happens. And so, we see how that was fulfilled in the Mark account. But also, it was a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Now, we are told why this is happening in verses 4 and 5. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell you the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh to thee, meek, sitting upon an ass, and the colt, the foal of an ass. Now, we're reminded of the Old Testament Scripture that this is actually quoting, and that's from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation. Oh, yes, because he is the sinless son of God through whom our salvation will come when he pays our sin debt in full, becoming the propitiation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Hebrews tells us. That is no forgiveness. But it has to be a perfect sacrifice. And so he's carrying salvation. And he says there in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, lowly, riding upon an ass, And upon a colt, the foe of an ass. I I find that interesting. The Jews were looking for the Messiah to come. They knew this prophecy. They knew this prophecy. That's why I think that there was a crowd gathered. They knew this prophecy. They were looking for him to come. This is right written about 500 years, uh, three to 500 years, before he enters Jerusalem. And and entering that way, that is what they are looking for, and he's entering that way when he comes. And so, he's riding on an ass, the donkey, to be a sign of who he is. He is their coming Messiah. He is the Messiah who came. And yet, as he rides these two that have never had a man on them. And all those people gather to gather around them. They don't buck. And he has that coat. I don't know if he has a rope or if he's tied to them, but somehow they're attached. And and, and they go up to Jerusalem. And verse 6 says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And Mark 11, in telling the story, shows that, yes, they did ask them and let them take him them. Well, they let them take him. Exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Exactly like Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, said it would happen, it happened Why doubt Jesus Christ when the Bible tells us 330-some years before it actually happened that it would happen? And he will ride in from Bethphage when they bring it to where he is. And he'll go over the bridge of Mount of Olives to go down to Jerusalem. Now, we look at verses 7 and 8 of our text. Why? Why? an ass and a colt, you wonder. Why is that? Verse 7 said, And brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothing, and they set him thereon. Now when he was set, you ever think of people uh, pouring concrete, And one of the questions after they do everything, is it set? Is it set? Don't do anything if it's not set. If everything's in place, don't do anything if it's set. He's set. In other words, he was staying on there until they reached their goal. Until they reached the place. He was there. And so, uh, they put him there. And they brought the ass and the coat, put on them their clothes they set there on. Now, in the Middle East, in the Bible days, uh, a king would ride a horse out into battle. I mean, going on to a battle, he was definitely going to be on a horse. And he's leading his armies, and they're going out to fight the enemy. The enemy who wants to not only defeat them, but to take all their goods, to take their land, to take their homes, to take their children, to take all their possessions of value. As Satan, he wants to take everything that belongs to God. And when they came back, they came back uh, victoriously. The king would enter the city, usually riding on a donkey. It was the symbol of triumph over the enemy that had threatened their people. It was saying, I'm going off on that horse as a conqueror. I come back. They were conquered and we have peace. And so that donkey represented peace and victory over an enemy that had threatened them. So Jesus is coming to defeat the enemy of all man. Sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But that's enemy, sin, that we all have that old sin nature that we inherited from our birth, from our birth parents, and they from their parents, all the way back to Adam. And now, been born with a spiritually dead spirit, so to speak. We had the promise of life. Everlasting life. Now, this is not the only example. For example, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 1, verse 33, we find that Solomon, King Solomon, rides a donkey on the day of his coronation when he's recognized as king. We see Balaam's ass who was carrying the prophet of God and the prophet God was riding on him going against the commandment of God and that ass saved his life causing him to bump against the wall. It would hurt that prophet He got up. He was ready to kill it. And God opened the mouth of that ass. And he started speaking. He said, I've been faithful. Why, Why? He said, I ought to kill you. I've been faithful to you. And then God opened his eyes. And he sees the angel of the Lord. That ass had saved his life. The angel of the Lord was ready to slay him for his disobedience. We see again in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 through 12, we preached on that a few weeks ago, and, and we, I want you to see this though, another thing. We see a type of Christ, he rides a donkey. It says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is Jacob, he's dying, and on his deathbed he has his 12 sons in front of him, and he's giving To them, the prophecy of the last days that God gave him to give to them, and how it figures in each of their lives. And Judah, his son Judah. He says, uh, he says, their scepter shall not depart from Judah. Other words, the kingdom. David came from Judah. Christ came through the line of Judah. A scepter. Would not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Why? Because Jesus is the great lawgiver. He even left us a new law. Thou shalt love one another as I have loved you. Not just love one another, as I have loved you. He says, a lawgiver would not uh, uh, have a lawgiver from between his feet, would not depart from that, until Shiloh come, and until." Uh, and unto uh, the gathering of the people be. J- Job, uh, excuse me, Jacob making this prophecy of the last days shows a time of Jesus as well. Judah being told that the line of Christ would come through his line, and by the way, it did and this is being told his son Judah 2,500 years before it happens. You can believe the Bible. And verse 11 and 12 says he's he's going to show the mission for us again 3,500 years before Jesus enters this particular time in Jerusalem. He says in verse 11, Binding his foe unto the vine, and his ass coat unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of the grapes. Now, do you see? It says the choice vine. The choice vine. In John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. You see, He is the choice vine. And my Father is the husbandman. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, He taketh away. If you are in Christ, you're saved, and you're one of the branches. Therefore, you won't lose salvation. But if you don't bear fruit for Jesus Christ, you will lose reward. There is a reward loss. Crowns that he had already planned to give, and they're given to someone else. The Bible lets us know there are those people that will be saved, but so as by fire. They'll be ashamed at His appearing. And I've always kind of wondered about this. I, I, I do, I wonder about this. Talking about the vine in John 15 and then back there in Genesis 49, we see an army behind Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19 when He is leaving heaven to come back to set up His millennial reign. And He'll defeat the armies of the world at that time and the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. But I wonder if those who would not bear fruit for Christ, will not be with that army. They'll be in heaven, but we're not told that every saved person in heaven will be on those horses that are following him. Don't quit in the trials. Don't quit in the devastations that come to life. And if you don't, you'll receive a crown of life, James 1:12 tells us. There's a crown of righteousness that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. For those that didn't quit in those things. And now you look back at Genesis chapter 49, verse 12, his eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. The wine of his eyes? Perhaps, as he sees, it is the blood that produced to save us from our sin. That which saved us, the milk of his purity. You know, as I see these things, And I'll say more about it tonight because we're getting ready to do the entry. But you know what? There's a Bible verse in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself unto God. You know what? That's really addressed to Christians, but it applies to the unsaved as well. To the unsaved, you'll stand before God one day, look, I did the best I can. That's not going to do it. That's not the way of salvation. Well, you know, I went to church. I I even tithed. Oh, I, I, I did this. I did that. I was born into a good Christian family. I even got baptized. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repent ye therefore, and be converted. Repent. Turn from the way you are. Turn from your sin, but be converted. Give your life to Christ. Look, you can't get rid of your sin. He has to take it from you. Therefore, you convert to Christ. You give Him your life, and He can take your sin away. He can take the power of sin over you away. He can take the, uh, the tendencies that you have and the, the various other things that come in. He can take that away if you let Him be the Lord of your life, the God of your life. He'll do that. But first you must receive him as your Lord and Savior. But as a Christian, I wonder, giving account of ourselves, when he's already said, how shall they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean a pastor. That's talking about a Christian witness. They won't be saved if people don't give them the gospel. How can they be saved if they don't hear and He wants us? And I wonder if part of the loss of reward in heaven will also, because at His feet there, when we're at the judgment seat of Christ and then we put those crowns that were supposed to be for ruling and reigning at His feet to dedicate the kingdom that He will give us in eternity, I wonder if there's no crown. It's only the royalty that'll ride out on that great white steed that follows him while the others are left behind. You see, Jesus came the first time when he entered Jerusalem there that very week on a donkey. But when he comes back, he's coming as a conquering general to defeat the armies of the world. But I really wonder, I really wonder if a loss of reward, not salvation, you're not going to lose the salvation, but a loss of reward may include, you won't be a part of that army. You won't be a part because it's just not a victor's crown for you. I want everyone that's not saved to be saved. But I want every Christian to reflect on their life and just say, Lord, am I the way you want me to be? Can I honestly say, as Paul the Apostle Paul said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. You could say that with confidence. Can I say that? I want you to think on that. Because this Passion Week is more than somebody getting a palm branch and just waving at it. It's far more than that. And I want you to see that tonight. But right now, I want you to consider your soul. Are you sure if you died today that heaven's your home? Let's bow our heads, please.